This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my intuitive eating online course. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 171 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Jennifer Gaudiani, a physician and eating disorder specialist who runs the Gaudiani Clinic. We talked about how healthcare professionals are doing harm by perpetuating diet culture, why people with eating disorders are often missed in our medical system, medical outcomes that she's seen in some of her patients who've adopted the health at every size approach, the role of social justice at acknowledging privilege in our work, and so much more. We also talked about her book, which is about the medical complications of eating disorders and is a great resource for both patients and healthcare providers. But I'll just give a quick trigger warning for it since it does talk about eating disorder behaviors in a little bit of detail in order to discuss the negative medical consequences of those behaviors. So if you think you might be triggered by that, then maybe wait on reading the book until you're in a better place. But otherwise, it's a great resource and really the first medical textbook that I've ever seen on eating disorders that really tackles weight stigma and doesn't use weight stigmatizing language, which is impressive. So I can't wait to share our conversation about her book and all sorts of other great stuff in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. It's from a listener named Jess who writes, Hi, Christy. I'm a therapist and I work in the eating disorder field. I've been following a dietitian who's also in the ED field on social media, and recently she's been posting about bodybuilding and fitness competitions and how they're quote-unquote amazing and how quote-unquote competing is a sport. In other posts, she's talking about body acceptance and intuitive eating. Am I wrong in thinking this is contradictory? And how might you approach this situation? So thanks, Jess, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, you're definitely right that it feels like a contradiction to be talking about intuitive eating and health at every size and eating disorder recovery on one hand and then promoting bodybuilding and fitness competitions on the other. And this is really a great example of how even people in the eating disorders field, even people who treat eating disorders, can still be caught up in diet culture. So bodybuilding and fitness competitions are really inextricable from diet culture because I define diet culture as a system of beliefs that worships thinness, muscularity, and particular body shapes and equates those things with health and moral virtue, promotes weight loss and body reshaping as a means of attaining higher status, demonizes certain foods and ways of eating while elevating others, and oppresses people who don't match up with diet culture's supposed picture of health. And so as you can see in that description, Bodybuilding and fitness competitions really 
match up with most or all of the factors that go into creating diet culture. And that's contrasted with true sports. Like true sports can exist outside of the diet culture paradigm. Like basketball, for example, can be played for fun, right? Totally outside of the worship of certain body types or moralizations about food and size. Although, of course, those things can get wrapped up in basketball as well since we live in diet culture. And so it is hard to engage in sports and and physical activity without having diet culture come into play, as I've spoken about a lot on the podcast. But it can be done because those things are not inherently steeped in diet culture. They can be engaged in in a joyful way, separate from and outside of diet culture. And basketball is just one example, but things like yoga or dance or whatever, you know, any sort of sport or movement practice you might want to engage in, if it's got its own redeeming qualities, if it's not just born out of these oppressive standards of diet culture, then it can be done without diet culture coming into play. But something like fitness competitions or bodybuilding, where the element of competition is really centered around your body's size and shape and muscularity and there's like nothing else really about it it's just about judging people based on those things that's inherently a part of diet culture also bodybuilding and fitness competitions generally require people to eat in certain ways right there's all kinds of diet culture messages out there about what you're supposed to eat in order to achieve the quote-unquote lean look that you're going for in fitness competitions or bodybuilding. And so in that sense, the moralizing about food, the demonizing certain foods while elevating others is also an aspect of these kinds of competitions. And if we didn't have those oppressive beliefs about certain body types being quote-unquote better than others or this oppressive ideal about what the supposedly correct body looks like, then competitions for whose body was supposedly best at matching up with that ideal wouldn't exist. You know, we wouldn't have fitness competitions or bodybuilding if we didn't have the structure and the system of beliefs already that said certain bodies are better than others. So that's not to shame anyone who's listening to this who's also in that world, who's in the bodybuilding and fitness competition world, and who's maybe struggling in their relationship with food and coming here for help with that, because we all get stuck in diet culture in different ways, and we all have our journeys out of it. So there's no shame. There's no reason to feel bad about yourself for being stuck in that. Like my thing used to be overdoing it on yoga and trying to be the best at that, or cutting out different foods in a relentless pursuit of what I thought was wellness, which was really just the wellness diet, instead of looking at how disordered my eating and thinking about food and bodies really was and how that was contributing to my health problems. So I get it. I've been there in a different context. You know, I never was into bodybuilding and fitness competitions, but I was into the wellness diet. So I get it. It takes a lot to step outside of diet culture in those sneaky forms. And we all have those things that trap us back into diet culture. And I know a number of people listening are probably in the bodybuilding or fitness competition world and struggling their relationship with food right now. So I just want to say that I have so much compassion for you and I understand your struggles and you're not alone. And even people who work in the field of eating disorders, for that matter, can have their own diet culture traps that they fall into. And there's no shame in that either. It's important to work through it in order to help your clients, in order to not trigger your clients. But it's also totally understandable given the culture that we live in. And so I don't want anyone to feel like they have to pile shame on top of themselves for being stuck in these diet culture traps. And I've talked about that 
with a number of colleagues on the podcast, people who are in the eating disorder and diet recovery field. And San Chang, I think, discussed that really eloquently in their episode, which was episode 150, about how they had been treating eating disorders for years as a psychologist and still fell into the trap of clean eating and the keto diet and all that stuff. So I would check that episode out for some solidarity, for some understanding. If you're in the place of feeling like you're caught up in diet culture and you're someone who treats eating disorders or body image issues, you know, you're not alone. And I think that episode is a good representation of that. But for Jess, who asked the question, it sounds like this dietitian you're talking about is in a bit of a diet culture trap. And that's really unfortunate because it sounds like she's probably confusing and triggering some of her social media followers. And that's not cool. You know, that's not something that is helpful. So if she's someone you know, I would say you could reach out to her and just be like, hey, let's chat. You know, I think I'm worried about you. I'm worried about this message that you're putting out there. I think it's really caught up in diet culture and could be confusing to your followers. And if she's in a place where she can hear that, then that's awesome. And maybe you can have a conversation about it and help her understand what's going on with her relationship with food and her body and how she's getting triggered. In all likelihood, if she's really psyched about bodybuilding and fitness competitions and stuff like that right now, she might not be in the place to hear that. She might be really defensive. She might not be open to that. And so even if you know her and you bring this up in a really compassionate way, you might not get too far, you know? And if you don't know her and you try to bring it up, which you could, you know, you could try just DMing her or something on Instagram, but I don't know if you would necessarily get any traction if she's really committed to these ideas, but at least maybe you'll plant a seed in her mind of like, oh, I wonder if what I'm doing is sort of a contradiction to my mission as a an eating disorder specialist. And then to anyone listening who comes across people like this on social media, like someone who seems to be doing contradictory things, trust that if you feel triggered or you get sort of like a brain scrambled, does not compute kind of feeling about someone posting certain things about fitness or wellness or weight or whatever, you're probably on to something and it's not just you. That person probably is having some struggles with diet culture that they might not even realize or be aware of. And I think as you develop your intuition, especially if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, if you've been immersed in the anti-diet culture space for a while, your meter for what diet culture is or for examples of diet culture is probably getting pretty finely calibrated. It's probably pretty well attuned. So if that little alarm bell goes off in your head, try to trust that. Trust that it's part of your intuition, that it's you're not wrong for thinking that and that you have some options. So you can have a lot of compassion for that person for going through that because it's all too easy to fall into those diet culture traps in our society. And you can reach out to them if you know them or even if you don't, you could try reaching out to them if you feel like you're in a place to maybe handle someone's defensiveness. Or you can decide not to because you don't have to do that. And that opens you up to someone's defensiveness and might not be a place that you're comfortable being right now. And in addition to having that compassion, in addition to possibly talking to the person, you can also choose to unfollow them in order to preserve your own recovery and your own freedom from diet culture because that's incredibly important too. And ultimately, you know, it's a cliche, but you got to put on your own oxygen mask first before helping others. And you got to look out for yourself in order to help other people, in order to help yourself recover and go on to make a difference in this world in whatever way you're given. 
So I hope that helps. I hope that gives Jess, who asked the question, a sense of maybe some next steps to take and also just allows anyone else listening who's been in this place on either side, you know, the person who's caught up in the diet culture stuff or the person who's observing that from a distance in social media. I hope that gives you some sense of how to proceed with compassion and with self-care. So if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode of the podcast, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to not have to wait so long for my answers to these questions, because Jess's question that I just answered is from over a year ago, you can come check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. It has an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast that I do for participants, and it has answers to hundreds of questions already. And when you join the course, course, you get to listen to all of that, plus get your questions answered every month in a new episode. So ask me any question you want about intuitive eating and health at every size and diet culture recovery, and I will answer that question. You also get tons of other exclusive content from me in the course and access to a private Facebook group for support from hundreds of other amazing participants in the course. So if you're ready to join this great community of people working to leave diet culture behind once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. This episode is brought to you by Paribus. Stop deleting your emails. Mass deleting your junk mail could actually be costing you money. Intrigued? Our secret weapon here at Food Psych HQ is Paribus, a tool that gets you your money back. It's 100% free to sign up, and customers keep 100% of the savings. There are no hidden fees or costs. Once you sign up, Paribus will scan your emails for receipts, finding refunds that you're owed from online stores, and making it easy for you to save money. If it discovers you've bought something online from one of the retailers it monitors, it will track the item's price and help you get a refund when the price drops. Paribus monitors online stores like Target, Gap, Old Navy, Nordstrom, Best Buy, and many more. Sound too good to be true? Well, there's more. If your guaranteed shipment from select online retailers shows up late, even that two-day one, Paribus will get you compensated. Head to getparibus.com to sign up. That's G-E-T-P-A-R-I-B-U-S dot com to sign up now. We're also brought to you today by Masterclass. Masterclass offers online classes taught by the best in the world. Each class is shot with cinematic production quality and offers on-demand lessons loaded with exclusive content you can only find on Masterclass. You can choose from courses taught by over 35 masters, including Margaret Atwood, Gordon Ramsay, Shonda Rhimes, and so many more. It's amazing, and new classes are always being added. Whether you're pursuing your passion or developing your career, you'll find a Masterclass for you. Masterclass has even been featured by the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and ESPN. And I took a masterclass with Malcolm Gladwell on writing, and it's been so helpful in the process of writing my own book. He's always been an inspiration to me in my journalism career, and I've kind of followed him and you know been inspired by him over the years, but it was really awesome to learn his actual philosophy on writing. And it really helped free me up because one of my favorite things that he talked about in the class was how to just let it be messy and not worry about tying up all the loose ends, which trying to do that is such a temptation, you know, when you're writing a long piece like a book. So it was really nice to have permission to just let go and not worry about it being perfect. Food Psych listeners can unlock access to every masterclass for a year right now by going to masterclass.com slash food psych. You'll gain unlimited access to over 35 world-class masters, all for one surprisingly low annual price. That's masterclass.com slash food psych, F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, for unlimited access to masterclass. Learn from the best in the world at masterclass.com slash food psych. 
Finally, we're brought to you today by Tomboy X, who I love because they are all about size and gender inclusiveness. Tomboy X is revolutionizing the underwear game by making underwear to fit you and how you see yourself. They have everything from bikinis, briefs, boxer briefs, trunks and boy shorts to soft bras and racerback bras, all in a huge range of sizes. And I have to say that they really are the softest bras and underwear I own. They come in everyday basic colors and fun seasonal prints, and regardless of where you fall on the size or gender spectrum, Tomboy X offers an amazing selection of underwear that anybody can feel comfortable in. Now you can support the podcast and support this really awesome, inclusive company at the same time. Just go to TomboyX.com slash foodpsych and check out their special bundles and pack pricing. Foodpsych listeners will also get an extra 15% off with the code foodpsych. Again, just use the code foodpsych, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H for an extra 15% off. Ditch whatever you're wearing for a pair of Tomboy X underwear. Go to TomboyX.com slash foodpsych. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Jennifer Gaudiani. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Ooh, that's a really good question. I would say first that as I try to start in many contexts, I have to name privilege. That I grew up as a white, cis, thinner-bodied person with two parents and financial resources. I also have some of the ones that one might not think that, for instance, I come from an Italian background and we have generations of people who believed in having family dinner together and in making delicious food and enjoying it together. These all helped my initial sense of food be a really comfortable one. My sister ultimately developed bulimia nervosa. And so in all vulnerability, as with everybody, there were issues around food in my family. There was size stigma that my sisters and I heard coming from both our parents in different ways. And I know this influenced me. And I know this contributed to my own internalized size stigma that we all face. But I would say that my relationship with food growing up was a happy and reasonably uncomplicated one. How did that affect you when your sister developed bulimia? How old were you when that happened? Yeah, she speaks very openly about it and is very courageous about sharing her story with people. So I was in medical school when she arrived at college in the same city. And the three of us sisters are really close. So when my middle sister arrived, we'd been talking for a while about her concerns about food and body shape. I knew nothing about eating disorders. All I knew was that I loved her unconditionally. And my message to her had been, honey, I love you so much. Don't take this out on your body. I'm sure this isn't about your food. I, I hope you can get some help. And indeed, once she got to college and I saw her and laid hands on her, she did get a therapist and she did go into to treatment outpatient. But she was sick for a long time. And it influenced me in ways that I probably don't even fully realize because she was the first person close to me that I knew. And she really helped educate my sense of what remarkable people get eating disorders and how I might want to be as a doctor. So was that something that you were getting trained on at all in medical school or was that not even part of the equation? Not even half an hour worth. Wow. Yeah, it was it was crazy, but I would say it scared me. It scared me to watch her and I loved her so much. And I think 
there is a positive message as she and I have talked over the years about what an inspiration she's been to me that out of her struggles, and she has felt herself to be fully recovered since her mid-20s, but out of her struggles emerged so much inspiration, so much strength, and my desire and interest to then help other people. It's really powerful. So let's back up a little bit then to talk about like how you got interested in medicine in the first place and what you sort of saw your path as being when you first went into medical school. Mm, that's such a fun question. Well, I was, I'm the daughter of a physician. My dad's a heart surgeon. And pretty much my entire life, I knew that I wanted to be a doctor, an English major and a doctor. My focus as an English major was on close reading poetry. Never met a metaphor I didn't like. <laughs> so um, I actually, in the days before HIPAA, got to spend a lot of weekend time with my dad in the hospital rounding on patients. And we would go bedside to bedside and I would shake hands or draw pictures for patients in the intensive care unit. So I grew up living and breathing medicine and just loved it. And I'd also watch him in his office speak to patients in advance of surgery. And I would see that chemistry happen, that connection. And I loved it. It was so inspiring to me. And so I realized that this was definitely going to be my path. But then in medical school, I quickly realized I wasn't going to be a surgeon. There were certain quality of life aspects that I felt surgery would not provide me within the, the way I, I defined certain quality of life pieces. And I wasn't sure. I was almost going to be an OBGYN because I love women's health. But towards the end of my third year of med school, I realized that I am at my heart a highly nerdy internal medicine physician who just wanted to be taking care of the whole human and thinking through how problems interact with each other. And so I became an internist. That's really interesting. So it sounds like you got a lot of early insight into the medical field. I'm curious how weight stigma and diet culture showed up in both what you saw of your father's practice in terms of like, I mean, cardiac, you know, these days, right? That's pretty rife with weight bias. When someone goes into any sort of cardiology appointment, there's often talk of weight loss and pushing certain diets and stuff like that. And definitely with internal medicine, I feel like we're seeing it more and more now too, where like internal medicine physicians are prescribing elimination diets and Ugh. prescribing weight loss for everything under the sun and you know not giving the evidence-based care that they would give to patients in smaller bodies and stuff. So I'm, I'm curious kind of what your experience was with weight stigma in those areas and what you what you saw and maybe what you went through yourself in your early days. Yeah, that's great. There are two ways I can answer this question. And one involves earlier insight and one involves dramatically delayed insight. I would say that from the perspective of watching my dad talk to his patients in larger bodies about their weight, he used a very classic mechanistic calories in, calories out. It's so easy from the perspective of his thin privileged body that I believed it sounded really convincing to me at the time. It seemed convincing and was consistent with what I was being taught through med school and residency and my early practice. I never questioned it. That's the delayed realization. That's that. Now I look back with just, oh, I cringe in my heart that I did harm in my early days, even though I spoke it kindly. 
I gave the same bullshit that doctors are still giving to patients all the time that was harmful and wrong. And I would be very happy to talk more about my journey into being a passionate health at every size internist. I would say that my earlier insight came as I watched another dear friend with type 1 diabetes and concurrent eating disorder, which no one had a name for at the time, who was a few years younger than me, struggle within a very patriarchal physician system in which when she used her voice and said, gosh, you know, I'm really finding myself worried about my weight. These older male endocrinologists would either literally or figuratively pat her on the head and say, first, let's get control of those blood sugars. And they just wouldn't listen. And I knew at the time, that was sort of the earlier insight that this needed to change and that I wanted to be an agent of change with my patients in that magical dyadic relationship where they could bring their knowledge of their bodies and their history to me. And I could bring my knowledge flawed as it clearly was in important ways to them. And together we could find a language that helped them make sense of that and would help them care for themselves long-term. So that I knew earlier and that has influenced me my whole life, but the mechanistic standard internal medicine version of weight is something that I'm much more recently awakened to. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it speaks to this journey, I think, that most health professionals go through in diet culture, where we're trained and steeped in the weight-biased approach, and we're trained and steeped in calories in, calories out, and it's mechanistic, and it's so easy, and here's what you do. And so many of us come into it with our own thin privilege as well, or if we don't, we're sort of shamed and made to feel like we're not representing the profession effectively. And everybody sort of carries diet culture with them. And I think it takes a lot as a health professional to undo and unlearn all of that stuff that we're, that we're trained in. So, you know, I'll empathize with you that I also did harm in my early days as a dietitian. Mm -hmm. And I kind of know that pretty much no health professional hasn't done that sort of harm. And we have to sit with that. And it's, it sucks. You know, I wish that we didn't have to deal with that. I wish that we didn't have to feel guilty and reckon with the harm that we had done because we didn't know any better. In some ways, I'm grateful for the reckoning because I think not to reckon would be to sit in what you might call physician fragility, that I did harm and it will educate the rest of my career. Not that I can undo it, but that I can now consistently and thoughtfully and humbly as I continue to learn improve others' awareness that I can use the power of my credentials and my really wonderful Western medical education to try to decrease the number of patients who will be harmed in the future in similar ways. Yeah, it does give you empathy, right? It gives you an insight into what other people are going through when they are steeped in diet culture and first coming out of it. Maybe other physicians and colleagues too that you have to work with. Very much so. And it also gives me a responsibility to try to make it better. How can I make this better? Not just one-on-one -on -one with my patients, but in wonderful venues like this. How can we make this problem better? Yeah, that's such an important mandate. 
And so, yeah, I'm curious how you got there then. What have been the sort of twists and turns in your journey as a physician and as a advocate for eating disorder recovery and now health at every size that sort of led you to this place of speaking out so strongly against weight stigma? Yeah, I love the power of story. I think that narrative makes us human and allows the details that make us individuals to emerge into the world. Um, My story continues that I did my internal medicine residency in my chief year. And then after a year in Washington, D.C., my husband and I moved to Denver about 11 years ago. And I started work at the inner city teaching hospital for the University of Colorado, which was called Denver Health Medical Center. A year into my employment, a gentleman who was the head physician of the hospital, who unbeknownst to me was the world expert in the medical complications of eating disorders, wrote out an email to my division at work and said, who would be interested in helping me to grow and run the hospital unit for the most medically malnourished patients in the United States who are adults who can't safely receive care anywhere else. And I immediately volunteered because of my history with my sister and my my other dear friend, having had to this date zero knowledge about eating disorders, except that I was a feminist and I was the mother of two girls and I, I had awareness, but no professional awareness. So I, I just, by fortune, fell into this field. And for the next eight years, I had the great privilege of being one of the leaders of the Acute Center for Eating Disorders at Denver Health, which remains really the highest level of care in the United States for adults with critical malnourishment and underweight, an interesting thing that I reflect on now. During my eight years, I learned so much from my patients and my colleagues, and what I saw was that the simplistic internal medicine understanding of calories in, calories out was baloney. It didn't hold. It simply wasn't true. The theory was fine and it wasn't real because I was having to nourish my patients with far higher amounts of energy than one might have quote unquote calculated for them to steadily restore weight and to heal their organs. So That was my first sort of, huh, boy, does that challenge what I might have thought. But I'm ashamed to say, or I I just, I say with humility that I didn't question beyond that. I was in a system that didn't encourage me to question and I didn't seek it myself. But when I left in 2016 to found my own outpatient medical clinic that cares for people of all ages, genders, and body sizes and shapes from around the United States as their medical doctor in an outpatient setting, working with multidisciplinary professionals, their therapists locally, their dietitian locally, this whole new world started to unfold before me. And Extraordinary professionals like Carmen Kuhl and Deb Burkhardt and Hillary Canavy, by grace, came on across my radar and I started learning from them. And I just, I was blown away. My, my brain exploded. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I think when you're first introduced to this stuff, it's it's mind-blowing. And it's completely different from what we are trained in, in the traditional medical model. And it takes some unlearning to get to a place of being able to relearn and help heal yourself and heal other people. It did. And 
I will be the first to admit that I did not spring fully fledged, nor am I yet, into knowledge of how to be a really thoughtful, capable, haze-informed internal medicine physician. My learning curve remains steep. And I got a lot of early stuff wrong. Even as I quick, as soon as I heard about it, I said, yes, this makes perfect sense. Okay, great. It was in the implementation. It was in the language that I used that I realized I needed to stay curious and really open and try to be as aware as possible of my own privilege, of my own internalized size stigma, and of what people had to teach me. And how did that unfold? How did you first come across health at every size, first of all? Ooh, you know, that's a great question. It should be this momentous moment, but I can't remember exactly when I learned about it. I think because I knew that I would be dedicated to patients with binge eating disorder in my outpatient practice, as well as patients of all body sizes with all eating disorders and all types of disordered eating, I think I started reading and listening and meeting clinicians. And the ones that I most gravitated towards were these social justice warriors. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is right. And I also have a totally badass staff of amazing women whom I work with, and they were aware of this and they helped bring it to my attention as well. So that was probably the start. I think then probably what happened next was that I started seeing some patients, either who had binge eating disorder or who had engaged in an online recovery platform that ended up leading them into harm. And in helping them medically, I realized that health at every size was a philosophy with its weight inclusiveness that I could apply to every single one of my patients. I'd always been uneasy about the double standard applied to those with anorexia and those in larger bodies. Certainly Western medicine in a non-eating disordered setting continually asks patients in larger bodies to perform behaviors that are undoubtedly eating disorder behaviors that would be impossible for the same physician to recommend for somebody in a smaller body. So I hated that double standard, but I wasn't sure what the way forward was. And then I saw Hayes and I was like, oh, oh yes, this really works. And it does, it opens your eyes to the double standard, I think too, when you start doing eating disorder work. And then Hayes is like the natural next step to that. I mean, that was my experience of coming to Hayes as well, was starting to see that eating disorders were just the same thing that people in larger bodies were doing to try to, it was dieting behaviors that were praised in one group of people and one size range of people and condemned in smaller bodied people because they had gone quote unquote too far. And I just became very curious about what is this demarcation line of too far? Why are the behaviors okay up until a certain point? And why are they not okay after they go quote unquote too far? And why is it not actually just problematic on the whole? Why are these behaviors Mm. not just problematic in and of themselves because of their potential to lead down this path? And I discovered Hayes kind of out of that curiosity and that sort of natural inclination of like, huh, what is going on here? I think 
gravitated towards Hayes as well when I saw it at conferences, when I saw people presenting on it and heard people speaking on it and read journal articles that referenced it. And suddenly it just made so much sense. And I was like, this is the the scientifically backed way forward from eating disorders. This is the way out of our disordered culture. Amen. I think that is kind of a natural evolution for people who do this eating disorder work. Although, of course, not everyone who works in the eating disorder field goes that far, is able to go that far. And that's a whole other (laughs) side Mm. conversation. But I think it is like this natural unfolding of awareness. Well, and from an internal medicine perspective, it's really interesting because I had to challenge so many teachings that I had received and accepted without question. So what I was finding, what what I knew coming into this practice and then saw reinforced all the time was that patients with eating disorders are invisible within the medical system. They are invisible because of physician or care provider lack of knowledge. They are invisible because if the person happens to be in a smaller body or even an emaciated body, providers' own internalized size stigma celebrates that shape even when it's being sustained in a way that is terribly medically unsafe. They're invisible when they're in so-called normal bodies and they're told, you couldn't possibly have an eating disorder because you look fine. They're invisibilized in larger bodies because no one understands that someone in a larger body could have anorexia nervosa. I've seen so many patients who've been accused of surreptitiously binging when in fact they have anorexia nervosa and they're in a larger body. And I've seen patients with binge eating disorder who are not in larger bodies who are disbelieved. And then patients who have binge eating disorder who are in larger bodies and experiencing the micro and macro aggressions that the medical system imposes upon them constantly. I am utterly convinced that physicians are an oppressor class when it comes to people with eating disorders. And I shouldn't just say physicians. I would say, you know, care providers of all varieties in the medical field. So I knew this. And yet when I started applying Haze, something really shifted in me. So I would see patients who might come into me in larger bodies. And I always do an initial evaluation in person. And then I'm able to do telemedicine around the country. But I always do an initial evaluation because I want to make sure that patients get a sense for what my style is because it's not right for everyone by any means. And um, patients who come in in larger bodies, having been socialized by a toxic society to think themselves unfit or unacceptable will ask me about weight loss. And I will be really upfront with them and say, let me be transparent. This is never going to be about a weight loss clinic. I'm never going to weigh you. I don't have any interest in what your weight is. In fact, the only patients that I weigh are those with clinical underweight whom I'm helping watch restore weight. Otherwise, it's not a vital sign that has any purpose. And when I tell patients that, some of them feel a little bit attracted to it, like, okay, maybe this doctor isn't going to cause me harm, but others can't sit with it. And I've had plenty of patients who say, Dr. G, if you're not going to help me lose weight, I'm not going to join. And I will say, okay, I hold space for your distress 
And that's never what this is going to be about. But I tell them about haze and I say, there is this different way of understanding your body and nutrition and your medical problems. And this different way entirely rejects diet culture. This way has to do, and I realize that this requires resources and access to care that not all can access. But I say this involves changing a relationship with food and nourishing yourself thoroughly and for joy and for your body's energy needs and attending to your mental health and being aware with a haze-informed therapist of the ways in which you might be experiencing minority stress or the ways in which society is harming you and harming your health. And this involves moving, if desired, for joy and within one's ability. And I always do it based on patients' values. I always start by saying, what do you want to do? What, what would you like out of this session? And if we move forward together, what would you want in life? Let me try not to be assumptive. Let me try not to impose upon you what I believe you want for yourself because I'm going to run that risk anyway because there's a power differential here. But if I ask you, I improve the chance that you actually tell me what you want and I help you towards that end. What I found is that patients who do join and who do follow me through Haze, who may have diabetes and hypertension and hyperlipidemia and obstructive sleep apnea, while we never check a weight, and I don't care what their weight does, I'm totally weight inclusive, but their diabetes control changes. Uh, One of my patients went from a very large amount of insulin every day to zero in the course of a few months. I have patients who have gone completely off diabetes medication in the course of nourishing themselves satisfactorily every single day. And, you know, patients who have been able to walk 10 steps and that's it due to breathlessness and chest pain are now going sledding with their daughter and they're going on hikes again. And those were their values. It's not that I impose that. It's that that's what they said would make them joyful. So this works medically. You know, we know it works psychologically because it makes so much sense. But I think there's a real question in people's minds. Sure, great theory. No diet, no focus on weight, but what's going to happen to their medical problems? And the answer is, it actually works. <laughs> like It works more than all the other bullshit does. Yes. Oh, that's so inspiring. And I think so important for people to hear because there is this sense. I, I hear it from people a lot. I hear it from listeners. I hear it from clients where it's like, yeah, 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 my mental health, fine, great. But what about my physical health? There's this sort of privileging of physical health. And I understand, you know, especially if someone has something like diabetes or heart disease or something that they're justifiably worried about. I get it, wanting to make sure that the physical health markers are stable and stuff too. And Hayes can provide that. But also it's about the whole person. Like you said, you know, the internal medicine, caring for the whole person. You can't separate your mental health from your physical health. And they're very much tied up together. So what is good for one is also good for the other. That's absolutely right. And this can only take place as part of a multidisciplinary team. I never try to play therapist and I never try to play dietitian. And so from around the country, I'm so lucky to have associated with and learned from 
wonderful Hayes-informed clinicians. And this goes deep. This goes into researching who are where necessary, fat positive massage therapists in a given city. Okay, that's where we're going to send my patient when they have foot and leg cramps. Who are size positive trainers who can do online virtual work with someone who is wheelchair bound to improve their flexibility and for instance, their capacity to get dressed comfortably without being winded. It has been so exciting to see how many people in such a diversity of professions embrace haze and how together when we keep holding space for a patient's distress, if they have it, about their size because of a toxic society and toxic healthcare policies, but we don't add to that toxicity, how much better a patient can get medically. Yeah. And I think where there's this sense in traditional medicine that every positive health outcome can be attributed to weight loss, right? Like, Ugh. you know, it's like if someone wants to reduce the amount of diabetes medication they take, for example, like what you were saying, or if they want to be able to walk further, they want to be able to play with their kids, like the things that people come in having as their values, oftentimes people will hinge that on weight loss and the medical establishment is all too willing to give weight loss the credit for those things when in reality it's not usually even if someone is doing something that makes them lose weight and they're dieting and pursuing diet culture behaviors if those side effects happen like being able to move more and go further and be with their kids for longer have more stamina or reduce their diabetes medication or something like that it's not the weight loss that needs to get the credit for that it's actually changes in in their movement or changes in their eating or whatever it is, but it's not going to be sustainable if it's yoked to a rigid diet or a diet culture or behavior. That's exactly right. I, I think that there is a rich and painful sort of horrifying irony in the fact that physicians are constantly talking about the so-called obesity epidemic. And I never use the words overweight or obesity because they pathologize size in a way that is not scientifically accurate or appropriate socially. But doctors keep touting this so-called obesity epidemic. And as with so many systems of oppression, I'm pretty convinced we're the ones who caused it. You know, between doctors recommending diets and we'll talk a little bit more about how I see the medical brain responding to a diet and then sort of capitalistic, consumeristic operatives within the country foisting both insecurity and sellable fixes to that insecurity. We've caused it. So we have to stop doing what we've been doing and take some responsibility. Oh, amen. That is so well said. I'm so glad to hear a physician say that too, because I feel like I've been saying that until I'm blue in the face, but I think it carries some weight when it's coming from within, you know, within the medical field. I think doing research for my book, I'm seeing that the history of diet culture is very much bound up with the medical profession, specifically researchers in the quote unquote obesity field getting a hold of this idea of an obesity epidemic and using, you know, spreading it as a way to, I mean, some of the earliest adopters of that model, some of the creators of that model of the quote unquote epidemic were highly paid by pharmaceutical companies for their research. Their disclosures would have been 
like a mile long with lots of different drug makers who happen to be, you know, making weight loss drugs. And so there's definitely a sort of cause and effect conflation that happens here where people are put on diets and being told that their quote unquote obesity is killing them. When in reality, the the stigma, the weight stigma that this so-called epidemic has caused is actually doing a lot more harm than people's size itself. And in fact, people's size tends to go up over time with diets. We know that from the research too, that every intentional weight loss attempt tends to result in not just regaining the amount of weight loss, but a little bit more. And over time, people's weight ends up going up. Not that that's a bad thing, not that weight gain is bad in and of itself, but that if you're told that it's going to have one outcome and it has the exact opposite outcome, you should be aware of that. People need to know what they're getting themselves into. And so then to say, well, look at this country's, the national waistline is expanding and all these terrible headlines that we have. And it's like, yeah, but the supposed cure is actually causing the supposed disease. And it's not even a disease in the first place. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's, it's so powerful what you just said. It also strikes me that it's a sign of the completeness of our internalized size stigma that we continue to believe the same bullshit even when we see that it's not true with our own eyes. We continue to believe that it's our fault if our bodies don't shift to match some very narrowly defined vision of beauty and wellness that's all nonsense anyway. You know, if, if everyone who washed their hair with shampoo, lost all of their hair, people would eventually stop using shampoo. And yet that's exactly what's happening with diet culture. But we're so acculturated to have distortions in seeing the reality that people keep coming back to it. That is That has got to be the definition of oppression. Absolutely. And like you said, you know, the doctors and care providers in general, health, the healthcare field is very much contributing to that oppression as being oppressive in the way that we frame these things. Because I think it's when someone's doctor tells them something, I think it carries more weight than when someone on the internet tells them something. And unfortunately, someone on the internet telling you something is also carrying a lot of weight in this day and age. But, you know, there's something about if your doctor says to lose weight, that's kind of a big deal. People have a hard time letting go of that. So I think that physicians own internalized weight stigma and, and healthcare providers in general, our own internalized weight stigma is what's perpetuating that system. I couldn't agree more. The medical reality is if we think about what I call our cave person brain, which is the part of our brain that evolved millennia ago to run us as a mammal. It's not aware of the outside world. It's not aware it's 2018. It just runs us as a mammal automatically. Our brains evolved to be exquisitely sensitive to starvation. This makes perfect sense because the way we survived as a species was to be starvation resistant. So the second our cave person brain senses starvation, which might be in the service of an eating disorder or disordered eating, or an athlete who unintentionally isn't getting enough energy intake to meet their output, or in the service of a diet or a so-called cleanse, the cave person brain immediately kicks into action and it goes, oh, I got it. I'll save my human. I know just what to do. 
each of us has a different way we do this. So in my, in my decade in the field, I've discovered that people change their bodies and their metabolisms very, very differently. But some of the things that our cave person brain might do in the face of starvation, after just a day or two of starvation, by the way, is to slow our heartbeat so that we burn fewer calories on our heartbeat. It might slow our digestion so that when we do begin to eat more again, we feel full really fast or notice constipation when we're not eating enough. It might turn off our sex hormones because when we're starving, our cave person brain knows this animal shouldn't be wasting calories on sex drive, shouldn't be wasting calories on sex, shouldn't be wasting calories on for females, menstrual blood loss, and certainly shouldn't be wasting calories on pregnancy. So our testosterone and our estrogen levels fall. It decreases our metabolism by making us chilly so that we seek warm clothing. So it's not responsible for keeping our mammalian body at 98.6 degrees. It makes our hands and feet cold so that we don't burn calories, keeping them warm. All of these different things happen as our sweet, kind, protective cave person brain just does what it's been doing for millennia to keep the human race alive. That's what it does. And so in some people in the setting of, of caloric restriction, they might lose weight. In others, they literally never will. And I call the difference between those two survival genetics and sensitive genetics. So the survivor genetics basically will not change the body's weight or physiology, no matter how egregious the eating disorder behavior. And those patients feel invisible and invalidated because no matter what they do, they don't quote unquote look different. The sensitive genetics folks do lose weight and their heart rate quickly tanks, and they quickly develop GI complications. And they say, well, I mean, why is this happening to me? I, I've seen other people who don't have as many problems as I do doing eating disordered behaviors. Why me? Why do I suddenly have to come to medical attention? Why can't I comfortably live in my eating disorder quietly and secretly doing these behaviors? So no one wins. But the answer is there's so much genetic variability in exactly how each of our cave person brains responds to the toxic influence of inadequate energy intake. And so knowing that medically, it makes perfect sense why diets don't work because our cave person brain is just trying to save us every day. Yeah, we would not be here if that weren't the case, right? We would not have survived. It's it's evolutionary biology. We're here because our species, for the most part, has had this survival instinct encoded into our genome. And it's interesting, the, the sort of litany of medical complications that you describe, those are very much the product of starvation and inadequate energy intake. They're also oftentimes blamed upon other things like, oh, it's gluten or Ugh. you got to stop eating foods with added hormones or whatever, you know, like the things about healing your hormone or healing your gut or doing a cleanse or whatever that are sort of aimed at these particular symptoms that actually are caused by starvation and 
orthorexic behaviors or behaviors consistent with anorexia or with bulimia or, you know, other disordered eating behaviors <laughs> and totally ignoring the fact that the disordered eating behaviors are the actual cause and making the problem worse by saying, oh, well, what you really need to do is eliminate this, this, and this, do a cleanse, do a whole 30, like oh. get to the root of these issues when in reality, your body would be able to function just fine and do all of those things that it needs to do, you know, digest properly, keep you warm, keep your sex drive going, keep your period happening if you're someone with a period. But instead, people are turning to all these alternative quote-unquote cures that actually make the problem far worse. That's exactly right. I talk to my patients and tell them that I have the privilege of walking the talk. There is nothing I don't eat and there is nothing that I won't enjoy. And I, I even say that the word moderation is too strict. Agree. Moderation in moderation is about as close as I can get because living immoderately can be fabulous. Mm -hmm. May we all enjoy immoderation. Yeah, moderation is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And, and ultimately, from the perspective of an internist, I tell them there is no magic in any one of these bullshit pseudoscientific current fads out there right now that unless they have a formal allergy to gluten, it's just a protein. But the vast majority who think that they're getting some health benefit out of avoiding this wheat protein just aren't getting the right information and they're missing the big picture. Nourish yourself. Enjoy the food. Recognize that human beings are nature's ultimate off-roading nutritional machines. Think about other big mammals. A giraffe can basically only eat acacia shoots and leaves. A whale can basically only eat plankton. But humans, the world round in different cultures and different geographies, can eat virtually anything and turn a post-nursing baby into an adult. It's amazing. So we have to embrace that heritage and not avoid it by living some just nonsense version of clean eating, which is the most fucked up, dangerous, unscientific thing I've ever heard of. Completely. Ugh, it's the worst. It drives me up a wall and it's still going. The fact that it's been thoroughly debunked and yet people are still gravitating toward it, I think speaks to a desire for something, you know, there's so many things that go into disordered eating, but I think there is a sort of a discontentment with Western medicine in terms of being able to address some of these symptoms. And I think what you were saying about physicians just missing people with eating disorders and them feeling, and I felt this way too, in my eating disorder, I was totally invisible to the medical field. I was, mm. you know, in, I've always been in a smaller body, but I never got into a small enough body. I never tipped over into that quote unquote underweight category to trigger the red flags to say, okay, maybe it's something to do with your eating, but I was having I had lost my period. I was having a lot of other complications that were very much a result of my restriction and overexercise. And no doctor that I saw ever put their finger on that. No doctor I saw ever said, you know, let me refer you to a therapist. I think this might be an eating issue or tell me about your eating. Tell me about what you're eating. Tell me about your relationship with exercise, your relationship with food. I was missed too. And I very much empathize with people who fly under the radar like that and all 
size bodies and all styles of eating disorders because it is so painful. And I think that in my experience with that, I was so drawn to alternative medicine and these wild out there practices. You know, I'm not even talking about complementary medicine like naturopathy, which is considered in some states to be a form of primary medicine. And there are some Western and naturopathic hybrid type physicians out there and stuff. But I'm thinking more of the really unscientific, totally bunk stuff like applied kinesiology or cell testing or hair testing and things like that. The stuff that's that has no actual validity and yet is so attractive to people who are in this place of, well, no doctor can tell me what's going on. Doctors don't understand and yet I'm still having all these symptoms. So what's happening? And rather than sort of being attracted to oh, maybe having someone say like, what about your eating? And let's explore that and being attracted to that alternative. The alternative that I was attracted to and that I've seen so many of my clients and online course students and listeners be attracted to is this other path of what can I cut out and what sorts of alternative medicine things that have PS, no scientific basis, but I'm just going to ignore <laughs> that. <laughs> what sorts of things in that arena can help me feel better? And, and I get it because we want to feel better and we feel like we're being let down by traditional medicine because it's not really addressing what's actually going on. I couldn't agree more, Christy. I've seen that so many times myself. And I feel deep compassion for patients who have been so failed by the Western medical institution that they are driven into the arms of someone who's going to sell them 400 bucks a week of quacky supplements that they themselves compound because no one's listening and no one knows the fact pattern. And there are great naturopaths out there. You're absolutely right. There's great ones and there's terrible ones, just like there's great doctors and terrible Western doctors. But it is so unfortunate to see these sort of food sensitivity studies come back, which are just bunk. They don't mean anything. And, and ultimately, I love bringing patients back to these sort of basic, fundamental concepts of body and nourishment and the cave person brain. And I think when we start to talk in that way, the veil lifts and they're like, oh, wait, this makes a lot of sense. This feels like I'm being heard now. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's it's something that more physicians and more healthcare providers in general need to talk about. But I think there's such a learning curve, like you said, right? There's so much to learn and there's so much of our own internalized biases to have to unpack. So how did you start to do that yourself? How did you start to go into your own internalized biases and even understand that they existed in order to move forward into a more haze space? Yeah, I think that I had to take a deep breath and realize that I had a total black hole inside of me. It was just a lack of knowledge base. It was a history of harm to others. And I needed to sit without fragility and fill that deliberately and with resources. And I was so incredibly fortunate to be able to seek out and have the mentorship of some of the folks in this field who you know, who've taught so many others too. And, you know, like I said, I have a great team and we sit in team meeting and they challenge me and they teach me. Uh, and I learned from my patients. And then I started paying attention to, you know, people who are social justice warriors online. Desiree Attaway has taught me so much. So 
I think that I, I started being willing to learn. And then I saw how beneficial it was for my patients across the board that, you know, a non-weight-centric perspective, that a non-assumptive perspective gave such lovely medical outcomes that I became passionate about it. And I continued to try to push into how can I do this better? How can I serve my patients better? And I actually just, I'm about to have a book coming out, which in the research for that, I learned even more. And in the sort of feedback on my chapter about health at every size and patients in larger bodies, I learned yet more. Yeah. I think the iterative process is really evident there, right? That it's, you're doing the work and you're out there in the world and learning and putting out your own products, your own content, and then having feedback on it and developing from there, which I think takes a lot of courage. It's a brave act to step out there and put yourself out there and say, I'm going to give it my best shot. And it sounds like it took a lot of and is, you know, continues to take, and I feel this too, like takes a lot of inner strength and resources to be able to sit with that feedback and that sometimes pushback. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And yet it takes less courage for me to learn it and to fuck up and do better and do better and mess it up again and then try again than it does for people without privilege who are living in the world. And I have to keep remembering that, you know, to just be aware of, yes, this is hard work for me and I'm proud to do this hard work, but gosh, it's a lot less hard for me than it is for the people out there who are on the other side of it. Right, exactly. The people who are being harmed by the lack of knowledge and the lack of awareness. And yeah, I think that's that's very well said and so important to remember. And I think for any health professionals listening, I think that's a that's a valuable lesson too. You know, I, I hear from people sometimes who are like, why are you always talking about social justice? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's really inextricable from this conversation about body size. You know, if we're gonna be talking about how to make the world a safer place for people in all bodies, it's kind of like pulling a thread. I started pulling the thread of like, okay, how do we prevent eating disorders? That was where I was coming from as a provider and a podcaster and journalist in the first place. And then pulled the thread more and it was like, oh, well, we can't prevent eating disorders without preventing weight stigma. We can't prevent eating disorders without addressing that piece of it, this toxic diet culture that we're all in that sparks eating disorders for so many people. Okay, so there's that. And then you pull that thread and it's like, well, how do we do that? How do we end weight stigma? Well, you really can't do that without A, looking at and acknowledging size privilege, you know, looking at thin privilege and how that's influenced my own perspective as a healthcare professional and as a journalist, but also other people's thin privilege and how that has influenced their practice in medicine or in research and science and looking at the lack of privilege and what that does to people, right? So having to sort of become aware of people's relative amounts of privilege in society. And then you really can't look at that without looking at, oh, right, also I have white privilege, also I have able-bodied privilege or, you know, all the other forms of privilege that one might potentially have as well as, oh, I have these forms of marginalization too, right? And of course, anyone living with marginalization in any arena is acutely aware of that all the time or maybe not. For me, I've had a lot of mental health struggles and I have become someone who, I mean, I think because of, by grace of a lot of other forms of privilege, was able to kind of 
sweep that aside for a lot of my public life and my professional life. And so really put a lid on that and kind of fell apart on my own or in therapy or in my relationships or had these pockets of my life that were really messy because of my own mental health issues, but on the surface or professionally or in my public speaking and work, I was like, came across as having it all together. And I think something that has been helpful for me and learning about all these forms of privilege that I hold was also that, oh, these other forms of privilege are sort of insulating this one area in which I do experience some marginalization, but I've also kind of marginalized myself in this way by not talking about that stuff or by by feeling ashamed of it and by feeling like I had to hide it from people for so long or even hide it from my professional life. So anyway, that's a little bit of my journey through this, but I think we all have our journeys, right? We all have our ways in which we have to start looking at these things and the ways that we've been contributing to harm and our privilege has caused us to harm other people who are more marginalized and also the ways in which maybe we ourselves are marginalized and have increased that marginalization or had lack of self-compassion for ourselves as well. That's just such a beautiful description. And I'm so, I'm sitting here in such gratitude for who you are. Thank you. I have a lot of gratitude for who you are too. I think you're doing amazing work in the world and we really need more physicians like you who are willing to step up and say, yeah, I fucked up and I had a lot of weight stigma and I'm still unlearning it. And yet I can also, I know I can do good. I know I can try to help rectify some of the harm that I've done in the past. Because I think that I know a lot of dietitians, I know a lot of therapists, I know a lot of health coaches, you know, a lot of people in this sort of general health and wellness space who have walked this path, you know, not as many as as we need, we always need more, but I think there's a growing number of us. But I think you're really in the vanguard for physicians. I feel like I only know a small handful of doctors who are doing this work. And I'm curious why you think that might be and why are you such a unicorn in this field and what can we do to help create more unicorns so that they're not unicorns anymore? Well, you know, I'm keenly aware in my own privilege that I'm not representative of a lot of the marginalized populations that I try to center, either through my writing or in my care. And I ultimately can't necessarily apologize for that because I am who I am, but I feel a a profound responsibility to use the platform I was given to try to shed light and to, to make other people aware of this, that I have the opportunity to do this and I want to. I think the fact that I was drawn towards the field of eating disorders when so many doctors are not interested helps. You know, I have sort of, I have it in my soul. I have it in my heart to care for these individuals. And like you said in your beautiful statement, you can't care for this group of patients like we do and not come to realize the bigger societal picture and the greater systematized wrongs. And I think that I've just been really lucky. So I hope that I can use my credentials to help others realize there's a different way of looking at bodies and medical care. And I'm not sure. I think it's going to take some time. I'm so grateful for you being out there. One of the ways that I'm really hoping I do influence people is my book. And so my book, if I can chat about it just briefly. Yeah, please. would love to. Thank you. Uh, it's called Sick Enough, 
A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders. It's published by Routledge, and it's really the first book written in patient-centered language to go over with a completely weight-inclusive lens that doesn't include any weights or numbers or things that might trigger people. What all happens to the body when people don't get in enough nutrition and when they engage in disordered eating? I love it. I think that's so needed because people don't necessarily know what's going on inside their body. You know, diet culture makes it almost like this black box. Calories in, calories out, but don't look at the box. Don't look at what's going on inside the box. It's just a calorie machine. And, you know, the surface of the box is all that we care about, like how you look. That's absolutely right. And having written it for patients and their families, as well as eating disorder clinicians, my hope is that even if I you know, obviously I can't help every single person who's out there. They can bring this book to a doctor who has curiosity and willingness and say, listen, there's this thing. It's called health at every size. There's this thing. It's called anorexia in people with larger bodies. And to have their doctors be able to have a resource written by an MD who was from Harvard and BU and Yale and be able to maybe make change that way as well. Yeah, that's huge. I think that's so important. It's such a great use of your privilege, really. And I love the title. I think Sick Enough is something that I've heard from so many clients with eating disorders. You know, like I'm not sick enough to deserve treatment or I was finally sick enough. And so I could give up my eating disorder or whatever it is. You know, it's like this idea of sick enough is such a has so much meaning. That's such a such a big metaphor, really, for people with eating disorders. I'm curious how you came up with that title and what it means to you. Oh, you just nailed it. You you got it. It's what I've been hearing from patients for so long. In fact, when I was in my hospital unit and we would have patients readmit, they would say, Dr. G, I had to get sick enough to come back to you. And I thought, oh, no, that is exactly the opposite of what I want to have people take away. And so being an outpatient doctor, my message to people is, honey, if you have an eating disorder or disordered eating, just by that fact alone, you are sick enough to seek help and to get better. And because I see people of all body shapes and sizes, all stages of their disease, ages, genders, abilities, sexual identities, what I'm able to say is every human is unique and worthy. And each one will have different medical problems, but each and every one is sick enough to seek recovery. Yes, so important. I think that message needs to be shared far and wide because people are dying from lack of viewing themselves as sick enough and from lack of care at whatever the DSM says now. It's a little more, there's a little more flexibility in it, but still to get a diagnosis of an eating disorder takes a lot usually. It does. The DSM is so sizest. It's really unfortunate. It is. I hope that there are more iterations of it in the future that finally break that down because even now there's like this subcategory of anorexia and large and folks with larger bodies but I feel like that gets missed by a lot of mental health professionals like they don't really know it's there and so they focus just on traditional anorexia which still says something about a, a low weight or whatever and it's like ugh, why I totally agree I you know so-called atypical anorexia nervosa is vastly more prevalent than anorexia nervosa and 
atypical anorexia nervosa carries twice the death rate of age-matched peers, a 200% increase in death. And death isn't the only negative outcome. I mean, it's, it's a life half-lived. It's leaving behind one's true values in the service of a mental illness that can be cured. Yes. And it's really, I think it speaks to that, that really high death rate and also just the high rate of complications. You know, I call diet culture the life thief because it steals your life. And I think things like eating disorders are a really stark portrayal of that. But I think even any kind of disordered eating and dieting falls under the umbrella of disordered eating. Any type of disordered eating steals your life. And I think the reason that we see such high mortality rates and such high rates of life theft really among people with atypical anorexia is this weight bias in diagnosis that people don't get recognized as having an eating disorder or maybe are applauded for their behaviors because it seems like they're shrinking their body and that's a good thing by diet culture standards. And so people aren't getting help and they're dying because of it. Exactly. It's such a tragedy. And then they also create generational chains of body distrust and dieting culture and lack of engagement in intuitive eating. All of these are tragedies and we can all play a role, whether we're providers or we're just, you know, a human in the world by not contributing to that toxic culture, by not talking self-referentially or degradingly about our bodies or restrictively about our food. We all have a role to play. And I just, I love helping patients realize there's another way. Yes. Oh, I love it. So tell us where people can get your book and learn more about you. I really appreciate that. The website for the clinic is www gaudianiclinic.com, which is G-A-U-D-I-A-N-I clinic.com. And the book is available on Amazon as well as on rootledge.com, which is my publisher, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E.com. And it's coming out September 2018. That's amazing. I'm so excited. Yes, I'm so excited too. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. Christy, you are so unbelievable. It has just been the greatest pleasure to join you. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Jennifer Gaudiani for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform to help other people recover from diet culture and disordered eating. Also, make sure you're subscribed and you can get your friends and family to subscribe as well. That really helps us out by going to christyharrison.com slash subscribe. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. If you're looking for some practical tips to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. And then to get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we mentioned, plus a full transcript of the episode, you can go to christyharrison.com slash 171. That's christyharrison.com slash 171. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. 
This episode was brought to you by Paribus. Our secret weapon here at Food Psych HQ is Paribus, a tool that gets you money back. It's free to sign up, and once you do, it will scan your emails for receipts. If it discovers you bought something online from one of the retailers it monitors, it will track the item's price and help you get a refund when the price drops. Sign up now at getparibus.com. That's G-E-T-P-A-R-I-B-U-S dot com. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my Food Psych programs team, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, and our transcript assistant, Megan Saichi, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there?